This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 30th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. A year since the election of Donald Trump, we evaluate his foreign policy, from taunting NATO allies to cozying up to authoritarian leaders to rattling sabers over North Korea and Iran. It's been a year of substantial uncertainty. The Cato Institute's Sahar Khan and John Glazer discuss the last year of the Trump foreign policy. In 2016, amid saying uh, a lot of uh, sort of terrible things about uh, how he would handle foreign policy. Donald Trump said some reasonable things, things that, uh, you know, amid all the horribleness may have made uh, uh, people who would otherwise praise what he had to say a little uh, reticent to do so. Uh, but what was the thinking about what a Donald Trump foreign policy might look like about this time last year? Well, I think with Donald Trump, especially when he was on the campaign trail, it was obvious that he didn't have um, any foreign policy experience. But that said, as you mentioned, his rhetoric was convincing for a lot of observers and a lot of his voters. He wanted to put America first again. And what that meant for him was to encourage allies to share um, the costs of security to make sure that American jobs increased and that the U.S. economy improved. Um, and that was sort of the rhetoric that he he used on his campaign trail. Um, with respect to foreign policy, it was very hard to predict what exactly he would do um, while he was campaigning. Yeah, I think, look, Trump, the Trump phenomenon has been characterized mainly by uncertainty and unpredictability. And at times during the presidency, he has appeared to make this an explicit strategic decision. Uh, It harkens back to the uh, Richard Nixon's madman theory of international politics. You know, you, you portray yourself as erratic and unpredictable, and you'll kind of scare your enemies and adversaries stiff and therefore bend them to your will. I'm not sure that that's a well-thought-out strategy by Trump himself, but the effect of it has not been to, uh, you know, bend certain aspects of the international community to our will. There's, in fact, a lot of international resistance to Trump. Where the uncertainty comes in and has been effective is in Trump's own administration. So you constantly find uh, members of the Trump cabinet uh, unsure of what the president's policy preferences are on any given issue. Uh, Oftentimes, each of them are contradicting the other. uh, And typically, the president is out of... um, out of step with even his own uh, cabinet. Uh, so, you know, I was uncertain how a Trump presidency would play out during the campaign. And one year in, I'm still somewhat uncertain because he's just inherently unpredictable. In 2016, the United States dropped 26,000 bombs around the world. Uh, most of those were in Iraq and Syria, some in Pakistan uh, uh, and elsewhere. Um, What has the clip been in 2017? Well, um, I think the clip has been that the strategy is really not going to change. In fact, um, when he unveiled his Afghanistan strategy, he advocated for a troop increase. Um, That troop increase has been followed by a NATO troop increase. So even though President Trump has been unpredictable, um, it hasn't really affected a lot of foreign policy strategies. So, for example, the United States is still heavily involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's no evidence that they're 
going to um, slow that involvement. Um, the United States military bases remain open and functioning. There's no evidence that um, they will be closed down. Um, traditional alliances remain, for example, relationships um, with Saudi Arabia and Israel. NATO is still functioning. Um, and overall, sort of the the liberal world order remains. So even though President Trump is unpredictable and he has surrounded himself with people who share his inexperience in foreign policy, um, it hasn't really, at least this past year, it hasn't really affected U.S. strategy. Yeah, I think what what Donald Trump proves is that the kind of ship of state that we now have uh, in the United States, the massive uh, professional and permanent national security bureaucracy, has a set of uh, goals and uh, strategies that they keep, uh, and it remains remarkably consistent at the grand strategic level, no matter who uh, holds uh, the presidency. Uh, one of the ironies with all of this, um, you know, sometimes during the campaign. Uh, because Trump occasionally mentioned things that, for example, Cato foreign policy scholars tend to emphasize, like burden sharing, uh, the fact that you know South Korea is rich enough and powerful enough to probably take care of its own security. Uh, he criticized nation building and this kind of stuff. Uh, sometimes that overlapped, that rhetoric overlapped with what we've been saying. But um, what it turns out to be the case is that during the presidency, Donald Trump's approach has almost been the inverse of what Cato would prefer. So Cato prefers a reduced military uh, role for the United States and the world, robust diplomacy, uh, peaceful engagement, trade, openness, immigration, etc. And Trump has done the absolute opposite of all of that. He's heightened and intensified the United States' military role in the world, increased bombings, more belligerent rhetoric, uh, you know, more hostile and war-prone uh, tactics. Uh, he's undercut the State Department and uh, sidelined the notion that diplomacy is even a valuable good. Uh, he's tried to um, ne renegotiate trade deals in a more protectionist manner, and he's tried to uh, cut down on immigration. So on almost every approach to the world, he's done the exact opposite of what um, sort of a non-interventionist, realist approach would, would advocate. You mentioned uh, burden sharing. Let's uh, talk about that specifically with respect to uh, NATO. Um, you know, it, Cato scholars have for a long time been saying, look, it, it's important uh, for a variety of reasons that our uh, uh, European allies pay more for their own defense and and put more into make that make that a priority of of securing themselves um, and to the extent Donald Trump has talked about it it has seemed as if he doesn't actually care about them uh, paying for their own defense so much as possibly paying the United States to continue to defend them right it's a kind of bizarre way to think about uh, international politics. But the way he thinks about it, I think, is just in, in, he's kind of grounded in this transactional view of life and everything's zero sum, everything's I win, you lose. Um, and so the notion that we would seek imperial rents from our client states abroad is just not how things actually work uh, in today's uh, world. And so 
Yeah, that's always uh, struck me as a as a bizarre way to talk about uh, sort of burden sharing, and that's why I was deeply skeptical that the occasional rhetoric that seemed to sometimes overlap with what uh, with the strategic arguments that uh, we at Cato have made uh, were actually not. Um, something to sort of bet on in terms of a change in, in, in strategy that would be amenable. Well, his rhetoric also, um, this idea that he wants the allies to pay the United States is also fits in with his sort of business mind approach. He is fundamentally a businessman. He is not a diplomat and he does not have any foreign policy experience and he does not, he's never ran for political office. He's never been a senator, governor, etc. And so in his mind, the United States is doing a service and for that, the United States should be paid. But as John mentioned, um, that's exactly, that's not how the world works. But for Trump, that that is, uh, John. You and I have talked about the uh, the Iran nuclear deal, and there are people, you know, a, a wide variety of people who support it. Uh, not the least of which, uh, I believe, Rex Tillerson uh, and uh, Defense Secretary Mattis both had good, positive things to say about about the deal. Um, but where does that stand now? Again, it's deeply uncertain, uh, as is, as is uh, the kind of theme here. Uh, what Trump did in October was formally decertify the nuclear deal uh, as a result of uh, legislation passed through Congress that is not technically a part of the deal itself. Uh, you know, they, they empowered the president to every 90 days certify that Iran is complying and that the deal remains in U.S. interests. And he decertified. That was against the advice of the vast majority of his cabinet. Not only did Tillerson support staying in, not only did uh, Secretary of Defense James Mattis support staying in, uh, but uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, said the same. Uh, uh, you know, um, H.R. Uh, McMaster, his National Security Advisor, said the same. All of our European allies, the intelligence community, uh, even some prominent Republicans in Congress, uh, because the the facts are clear that Iran is complying. The deal is working to stave off an Iranian nuclear weapon, uh, and then it remains in U.S. interest to keep the deal. So uh, we're set up now because Trump, during his decertification announcement in October, said uh, he's giving an ultimatum to Congress that if they don't come up with a more muscular approach that perhaps slaps on new sanctions or tries to target Iran's ballistic missile program or support for proxies in the region or something, that he would back out of the deal formally and end it. Uh, if that happens, uh, it seems to me that Congress is distracted with other domestic issues and they'll probably do what they do best, which is very little. Um, and so if that happens and they don't adopt something more muscular and Trump does formally back out of the deal, the question then is, can the deal survive without the United States? And I think there's enormous pressure both in Europe uh, and inside Iran, as well as China and Russia, to maintain the deal. Uh, Iran has uh, an interest in, you know, continuing to abide by the deal's prescriptions, even without the United States. And that'll just isolate the United States. But uh, it'll be good for the deal and for stability in the Middle East uh, if, if things actually do go that way. What would be best is that we just stay in the deal. We recognize what Trump's cabinet and even some incredible hawks like uh, James Mattis and Condoleezza Rice and all these people have uh, said, which is that it's in our interest to stay in. With respect to uh, the people that uh, Donald Trump has been critical of around the world and in, uh, as uh, in foreign policy, uh, he's had a lot of critical things to say about people who are explicitly allies of the United States 
and yet he has had nice things to say about uh, Vladimir Putin. He has had nice things to say about uh, Erdogan in Turkey. He's had nice things to say about Duterte in the Philippines. And of course, uh, on his uh, trip uh, most recently, seemed to cozy up as much as uh, more than most people expected to Saudi Arabia. Yes, that's true. Um, And this sort of goes into one of the characteristics we see in this first year is that President Trump likes to base foreign policy decisions on personal preferences rather than on any strategic value. Um, This sort of goes to it indicates sort of his um, disregard for empirical information. And this is like the Iran deal is a good example of that. But it also shows his um, tendency for nepotism and his tendency for those who flatter him. Um, And I think that those are that's a dangerous combination to have, especially when you're um, trying to have a coherent foreign policy. Now, of course, there can be an arg- there can be an argument made of how the Trump foreign policy is actually very inconsistent and unpredictable, which it is. But if you look closely at his personality, his approach to foreign leaders is very consistent with somebody who is a narcissist. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there are. What we have to understand is that I think from the beginning, Trump has shown himself to have a kind of an authoritarian mind. Uh, And it's not only his fealty to other authoritarians around the world, uh, as opposed to kind of liberal democratic leaders around the world. But, you know, it's his attacks on the media. It's his um, kind of bullying manner. uh, It's his kind of uh, right-leaning law and order uh, tough on crime, tough on enemies, um, you know, hit back hard, um, uh, disrespect for uh, the Constitution, uh, you know, legal limits on his uh, capacity as as the executive. Uh, almost across the board, he's demonstrated a real dislike of uh, small L liberalism uh, and democratic norms uh, in this country. And so in that context, it's not all that surprising that he should uh, have uh, have uh, some appreciation for uh, dictators around the world. Now, I, I uh, hasten to bring this up, but uh, probably should anyway, that as we record this, uh, the New York Times and Vanity Fair and some other sources are reporting that uh, the White House is uh, in talks or having discussions about ousting Rex Tillerson from uh, his post as Secretary of State. First, let's talk about R- Rex Tillerson. When you when you think about who this person is on paper, he seems like, in many ways, an ideal candidate for Secretary of State when you consider the kind of work that he was involved in before he took the job. I think that's... Um... I think that's a correct assessment. Um, Rex Tillerson was the CEO of ExxonMobil, and so he has a great deal of experience dealing with a large company and a large bureaucracy. Um, I think Tillerson is not as bad of a secretary of state as we as we think that he is. I mean, first of all, his sort of revamping of the State Department is long overdue. Of course, the way that he's doing it is not necessarily um, feasible. There are a lot of uh, positions that remain empty um, and key positions. And for example, we still don't have a U.S. ambassador to South Korea, which um, may not 
which is not exactly Tillerson's responsibility, but at the same time, it goes into the Trump administration's whole disregard for foreign policy experience. Um, I think we, I think Tillerson would be is still better option than the alternative, um, but it seems that his hands are tied and he is constantly contradicted. Yeah, look, if if uh, if the reports are true and Trump gets rid of Tillerson as Secretary of State within the next few weeks, that'll make him th- that his time as Secretary of State the shortest of any Secretary of State uh, in the past 120 years, uh, with the exception of uh, Secretary of States whose uh, tenure was changed by a change in presidents for some assassination or or what have you. Um, that's pretty remarkable, uh, and it and it and it demonstrates, by the way, that his rumored uh, successor, um, you know, would be uh, current director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, one of the most hawkish individuals in Congress when he was in Congress, um, and has uh, done some troubling things as director of CIA, like leak, um, uh, you know out-of-context intelligence uh, with regard to Iran's support of um, and co- possible cooperation with elements of al-Qaeda in the past. Um, and the replacement for Mike Pompeo at the director of CIA would be uh, Tom Cotton, another of the most uh, fantastically hawkish people in Washington, D.C., uh, an outlier even among the Republican Party and how uh, harsh and uh, uh, aggressive uh, his his preferred foreign policy posture would be. Um, so this is not a good sign. This, is, this would be a sign that the Trump administration is going to tilt even further to the right in a more hawkish uh, and belligerent direction, and that's really troubling. And I want to I stress that this is, this is uh, as we're recording and not, man, this is Necessarily, as you're hearing that this that this plan is just uh, rumored and uh, talked about by some White House insiders, these news sources. So for the next uh, year, uh, you know what is what's the what's the path out of this? As you know, I, I think about when in terms of foreign policy and the United States' various foreign entanglements that uh, we are involved in. You know, it's, it seems like there's a path out to say, I want to respect veterans. I want to respect our military members as much as I can. And so, uh, you know, my goal might be let's get them out of harm's way unless it's absolutely necessary. It doesn't seem likely, but if I had to chart a path for somebody who is a born again, uh, <laughs> born again, somebody who cared, cared about uh, getting the U.S. out of these entanglements, that's, that would be my way f- of doing it. Yeah, I mean, look, in, the Defense Department came out with a report uh, two or three weeks ago that said the uh, number of U.S. troops deployed in the Middle East has increased by one-third in the Trump administration's first year. That is an incredible increase, and it wasn't. there was no announcement associated with it at all. It was just, I think, uh, a really troubling indication that Trump is not one that is inclined to pull out of areas that we're currently in and so on. But in terms of what can change, you know, what uh, the Trump administration should do uh, as opposed to what it's currently been doing, um, you know, there are easy ways to turn down the temperature on several of the world's uh, most intense hotspots. So if you think about his approach to North Korea, for example, he's used tough rhetoric. He's uh, he's probably been, been more provocative uh, than any 
post-Cold War American president to the peninsula. Uh, he's even got the South Koreans nervous and making public statements to the effect that they think that we should uh, uh, exercise more restraint and so on. Uh, and that's a troubling situation. But there's a way to turn down the temperature, which is to... Uh, be willing to make concessions, uh, use a carrots and sticks approach to diplomacy, uh, and emphasize the dip diplomatic route as opposed to the military route, which is the, the only thing that he's emphasized, in which everyone concedes uh, would be a catastrophe within 24 hours of a count, uh, outbreak of conflict on the Korean Peninsula. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of lives lost. Uh, and I think all sides understand that and know that, but Trump can easily just make a more diplomatic posture, uh, his, his MO, and that, that, that uh, is true across the board with, with Iran, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with China. You know, he can choose to be more diplomatic at little cost to our national interests. Uh, in fact, it would be in our national interest to pursue that more diplomatic posture. So the, there, there are easy changes that can be made. Um, yeah, I agree with that completely. I also think another way out is to emphasize empirical information. Till now, most of President Trump's decisions or have been based on ideology and have based on either, you know, a faulty use of data. And for example, his, you know, countering immigration and linking it with terrorism indicates that that he has complete disregard for empirical information. And I think a way out for sort of military intervention towards a more diplomatic approach would be to look at studies that have been done. For example, the threat of terrorism is inflated. Most of the immigration is legal. 99.7% of immigration is legal. All the countries on this travel ban list, um, none of those countries, the immigrants from those countries have conducted terrorist attacks in the United States. And so I think a way out, and hopefully this is something the Trump administration will do, is to look at the information available and look at your data more critically, along with pursuing a more diplomatic approach. Sahar Khan is a visiting fellow, and John Glazer is director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>